You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Good day, everyone. This is Carlton here from the Life Ruins Podcast. Just so you guys are aware that this is our celebratory episode 100 for Life Ruins Podcast. The episode that you are listening to or about to listen to was recorded live on Saturday, March 12th. We plan on doing more live shows in the future. Please support Ukraine in any way, shape, or form. We have some links and resources down in the episode description. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to our first live show celebrating the 100th episode of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johnnan and David Howe. On this episode, um, we are very excited to have um, Simone on here. Uh, we were hoping to have a different celebration uh, than the, to do something different and to do something different for our live show. But I think this is the perfect opportunity to to have uh, have this conversation and to celebrate us uh, also getting to 100 uh, podcast episodes. Uh, however, <clears throat> due to the recent invasion of Ukraine uh, by Putin's Russia, we wanted to use our platform to support the Ukrainian people. So we're here with Simon. Yeah. Um, Simon, thank you so much for joining us today, man. It sounds like... Uh... There we thank go. Thank you very much for the presentation. Yeah, thank you for letting me be here. Absolutely. So for our audience that's listening live right now, um, you are able to ask questions, um, say something in the chat box. So as we're going on through this interview, feel free to ask questions to, our, uh, to us and, and uh, Simon, um, and we will field them as we get them. So just kind of just starting off, dude, like, how are you doing? Well, comparatively well, you know, you know I'm safe. I'm OK. So I believe that's more than enough for now. Right. Excellent, dude. And, and how? Oh, let's go ahead, David. Well, where exactly are you located currently in the country? Right now, I just entered Italy and uh, oh, okay. just entered uh, the airport in Milano. Before that, I used to be in uh, Kiev and then on the western part of Ukraine uh, in Lviv for a few days. Now I'm trying to go back to my university and my research. Okay. I mean, so you had to cross. I mean, you started off in Kiev on on uh, February twenty fourth, got to leave, and then you had to cross the border into Poland and then take a flight to Italy. Yeah, that's it. And this took I, about like two weeks. Oh, uh, yeah. That's not like I spent two weeks to do that. Yeah, we just woke up at February twenty four, and you remember the location of my home in Kiev? It's right near the airport on the one hand and the military base on the other hand. So that's not the best way the best place to be located when the war starts yeah. uh, and uh, so few days we spent to uh, move the whole family all my relatives to some place near Kiev to be sure they are safe and then we worked to, did the same with the school I used to work with we had already rented the base near Lviv in the western part of Ukraine so we just uh, did something to arrange the study there with the online with everything to be sure that school can work and when this was done i just started to think of how can i go back to university so i crossed the border and then i crossed almost the whole uh, poland and just entered italy that's bonkers yeah. and just i mean kind of like setting this up because this just 
this this whole war didn't happen out of nowhere. I mean, there's been like two decades, even like three decades of kind of build up to this. And so for like a lot of our audience, like I didn't know when I showed up um, to meet you guys, really the differences between Ukrainians and Russians, because that's just something we're not taught over here. So can you for our audience explain like what are the differences between Russians and Ukrainians culturally, linguistically? Like, why is this important? Uh, well, uh, basically, uh, the, the simplest uh, way for now is the historical reasons and language stuff. Yeah, so there's different languages, and uh, basically there's different ethnics and different uh, ethnoses and different nations. And we know this uh, like uh, consciously since uh, the late medieval age, I believe. So as soon as uh, Ukrainians start to create some kind of systems uh, after the uh, Golden Horde and the mass Mongols did on the Ukrainian land, uh, we considered Ukrainians as something that is intended to be separate and independent. And then when the most part of Ukrainian territories were under Russian Empire, we still uh, thought that Ukrainians are independent because of ethnicity, because of language, because of uh, literature and some uh, meta-narrative of the Ukrainian independent project. And uh, since the beginning of 19th century, uh, the idea of Ukraine as a more or less independent nation uh, already appeared. So we tried to do this uh, when the Russian Empire turned to be USSR, but failed because of uh, the difficult political processes there. And then we had a new attempt, which is appeared to be successful in 1991, and Soviet Union um, crashed. Yeah, but. Uh, Basically, uh, we still had a lot of narratives of post-Soviet fraternity fraternity and some kind of um, common destiny of Russians and Ukrainians and a lot of uh, ideas like this. And in Russia, uh, from some point, there were um, a huge increase in the intensity of these ideas. So on one point, on some point, they just decided that uh, as we are the close uh, nations and as we are kind of brothers, uh, generally it would be better if we create some one governmental system. Yeah, so it's simply better to invade us. It's long story short. But basically since 1991, Ukraine is an independent country with independent um, law, independent constitution and with the um, political institutions that are supposed to prove its sovereignty and independency. Gotcha. So, like, even prior to the Soviet Union, Ukraine had a history of being independent, being ethnically and linguistically different. And so kind of this myth of of one people is is from the post-Soviet narrative. Um, yeah, there is no such thing as uh, one the, the paternity of the nations at all, in fact, yeah, and it's ridiculous to say that uh, Kazakhstan, people from Kazakhstan and people from Belarus and people from Ukraine is just the uh, one crowd of mm-hmm. Soviet people. Yeah, now it's simply ridiculous. And like, yeah, we knew it for long ago, but this is, you know, this sounds like some empire stuff, imperial stuff, but 
Yeah. Yeah, it's impossible in 21st century we to consider empire as something valid. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to, I wanted to ask real quick. So you you got this independence in 1991, but there's always been this kind of Russian influence, Russian attempt to like infiltrate the government. There's always been something there to try to yeah. kind of get Ukraine and back. We used to have political discussions of, uh, in Ukraine. I mean, inside of Ukraine. Uh, of uh, what is the right vector for the Ukrainian development. So at some point, our uh, former president invented some kind of uh, multivectorality, which means that we are uh, like communicating with Europe in terms of your integration, but still trying to communicate with Russia and be uh, good neighbors with them. Uh, and uh, since 19, well, since 2014, uh, Ukrainians uh, declared their uh, uh, will to integrate in the European Union, and since then this war on the east of Ukraine started, basically. So uh, as more we try to integrate with the West, uh, the more impacts of Russian invasion we have. That's um, in like the states, we're kind of taught like larger aspects of history, um, less so than like small, like, you know, finite details of, you know, Ukrainian Russian history. Uh, and you, you mentioned like the golden horde, uh, we're aware of like the Kievan Rus. So is it, is it at that point where Ukraine and Russia kind of split linguistically or what Um, kind of goes on there? That's first of all, that's kind of a complicated question, and it's kind of a complicated question to me as not a linguist. But uh, before the Mongol invasion, we had a kind of uh, a governmental entity uh, or civil entity called Kievska Rus, yeah, which is the one uh, country of all Slavic people. And then we had two languages there, which is the old Slavic language and the church language used okay. in sacral stuff, yeah. And uh, two of these languages evolution differently. And then uh, in some proportion became, became a basement for the Russian and for Ukrainian language. The modern Ukrainian language, as we know it, appears in uh, 19th century, in writing at least. Yeah, and it is not even considered uh, at the beginning of the century as something independent. But then it appears that we have the, our, our own literature with, on this language. And this literature is already infected by the national idea and the national project of Ukrainians. So gotcha. that's it. Cool. Yeah, I did not know that. You brought up like two critical pieces of history, you know, kind of talking about Ukraine's neutrality. And then like there was a brief period in like 2004 under the Yushchenko presidency where, you know, he was about to sign the EU agreement and then he just kind of did an absolute psych. And then you have the orange revolution that takes place in Ukraine of like young people rising up and saying, no, we don't want uh, we don't want to be close to Russia anymore. We wanted to be part of the EU and and. Um, and this is followed by what, like 10 years later and with the revolution of dignity or the maiden revolution in 2014. Yeah. That's more or less um, slightly different stuff. Like orange revolution is, was the revolution caused by presidency election in Ukraine. There were two candidates, one like pro European, which is Yushchenko, and another is pro Russian, which is Yanukovych. And, uh, uh, Ukrainian nation considered, Ukrainians considered that this election was uh, um, 
calculated wrong when Yanukovych won in the first turn of this election. So uh, people just came to the streets and uh, pressed the government to provide another election. And then when you uh, became uh, start to be a president, then on another election, uh, everything came back and Yanukovych became a legal president in 2009, I believe. Uh, yeah. And uh, after that, uh, when uh, he refused to sign the agreement of your integration, uh, some students in Kyiv came to protest that on our central square, uh, which is Maidan of Maidan Azalejnosti, which is the square of independence. And they were beaten by the governmental forces, which basically caused this process of revolution of dignity and street fights in Kyiv, and then changing the president again. And then this guy, Viktor Yanukovych, just left Ukraine uh, in a secret way, running to Russia, and lived for some time in Rostov or somewhere there. And he's he's still out, out and um, you know on the run essentially, right? As an outlaw, and that's uh, yeah. And he just appeared a few weeks ago with some funny declarations and advices to Ukrainian politics, what to do in terms of Russian invasion, which is obviously an absurd one. That's it. Mm. it it's so. It just seems like there's always Sorry. this, yeah, like you're saying, this question between where does U- Ukraine fall? Is it part of Russia? Is it part of Europe? And there's this this battle to take it either direction at this point. I mean, is there, I mean, and I know this is a big question to ask, but is there anything, any really good solution besides, you know, besides Ukrainian independence and making their own choices? Um well, uh, basically, we have a lot of international agreement that simply should protect our choices and our sovereignty. Uh, I believe that's not about really what you're asking about, yeah? Uh, but in terms of uh, simple logic and of history, uh, Ukraine is rather not Russia than Russia because of the long institute of democracy, long living democratic institutes that uh, really established uh, in some primitive form, but are established in Ukraine since uh, maybe 15th century or the beginning of 16th century, uh, yeah. And then our uh, constant attempts to become the more and more autonomous uh, structure. Uh, they uh, beginning basically of Ukrainian-Russian uh, relations after the Golden Horde was the uh, agreement of Ukrainian Cossacks and Russians to create a military alliance against Poland. But this military alliance appeared to be a colonization, in fact. Uh, so the idea of this Ukrainian sovereignty really falls back to 17th century. And we really have uh, different institutes like Tsar uh, in Russia against more or less democratic election of Hetman in Cossacks, uh, for Cossacks in Russia. Yeah, that's a lot of difference. Gotcha. So also something that's been mentioned on the news a lot, like um, Putin claims that he's trying to protect Russian speaking Ukrainians. Now, are people like are Ukrainians that speak Russian? Are they culturally Russian or is it just that's the language they know? That's the language thing. Uh, the, uh, this is very manipulated stuff because uh, the uh, 
most popular and the uh, lingua franca of Soviet Union was Russian. So any people in post-Soviet space basically you know, knows Russian or used to know Russian or Hispanics knows Ru new Russian. So anyway, Russian is Russian language is here, and we can't avoid the fact that uh, more than seventy percent so Ukrainians know Russian, uh, but that's. That doesn't mean they aren't Ukrainians, and this is definitely um, not about their protection. That's like we're not killing people on the street because they speak Russian. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, a good point. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, can you tell us about the the Orange Revolution? Because um, that was pretty recent, but I don't think a lot of Americans paid too much attention in terms of as to what's going on now um the, the orange one you mean the orange one of 2004 yeah yes yeah. uh, for me i was kind of little boy that, back there but uh, the general idea is this is very simple people uh, considered that the uh, calculation of the president election was wrong so they just came on the street and with um, a really peaceful and calm protest uh, declared that they want this election to be redone and recalculated. And after a calculation, it appeared that the calculation really was wrong and the president should be an allegation to the president. That's it. Okay. Okay. And then later on, we had like the, or you guys had the revolution of dignity and the, the maiden revolution. Um, can you briefly explain that? Yeah, that, that's the uh, more uh, revolutionary stuff because uh, then kids, students really were beaten. Yeah, and that was like something that happens in Russia when people go to the protest and uh, some guy in with uh, weapon simply beats them and. Uh, are trying to arrest them and everything. And when these hundreds of students, maybe all of them are, were just uh, thrown out of their protest, a lot of people uh, came to protect their, basically protect their right to protest. That's it. And as soon as government uh, improved, increased uh, their pressure on the people, people simply increased their pressure on the government. And uh, finally, we came to the point when uh, Ukrainians declared that they don't want to uh, be ruled, be followed by the president, who is definitely pro-Russian and who mm -hmm. or gives the order to, to power, yeah, to the military forces to kill people and to beat people. So we simply declared that we want to change the president. Gotcha. Okay. Excellent. And for those that are listening, um, the recorded episode, we're going to go ahead and take a break. This has been segment one with Life in Ruins. We're here with Simon talking about the war in Ukraine. Welcome back to segment two of episode 100 <laughs> of Life in Ruins podcast. Um, we're still here with Simon. Uh, he hasn't left yet. None of us have left. Um, Simon, so we have a question from uh, the audience. Um, Matt is asking, what was going on right before the invasion? Were there groups in certain regions who wanted independence from Ukraine, such as the Donetsk and just uh, like this, uh, you know that in the last eight years we have the war in these regions, but uh, basically uh, this appears to be a very calm war now. We have the border between these republics, the yeah, so-called republics, 
and we have the uh, military forces on the one side and on the other side. Uh, that's it. The border is not moving. Uh, some fire sometimes happens, but no kind of big uh, movement in any side. Uh, and uh, we just started to uh, notice that Russia uh, appears to transport their military forces to Ukrainian border, all across the border. That's it. There were no any civilians, civilian actions or any kind of, uh, I don't know, terrorism, genocide from Ukrainian side. Yeah, basically nothing happened. Uh, what really happened is uh, our president and basically all Ukrainians just uh, started to insist on the uh, quick uh, procedure of entering NATO. That's it. And I believe that this message was more or less stressful for Russian government and for Putin personally, because it is kind of going to be dangerous for them to escalate NATO to the east. Um, so, uh, Carlton, did you have one? Yeah, I did. Sorry, everyone. These are one of those moments that we edit out in post-production where there's that awkward silence. We'll try to figure out the next question. So you're seeing this live. Um, kind of leading into this. So, I mean, like, what was interesting, I mean, not necessarily interesting, but, you know, leading up to the invasion, like, the United States intelligence services were, like, blaring warnings, like, this is going to be happening. There are going to be these false flag operations. Like, at, uh, leading up to it, Simon, did you actually think Russia was going to invade, or, or did you think it was just because war of Putin kind of just strutting his chest and nothing was actually going to happen? Oh, that's a tricky one. Like, you know, I'm not waking up this day and yet. Well, maybe the war will start tomorrow. And like, okay, so I'm going to go and eat some creeps. No, that, that's not like this. I I believe all Ukrainians or maybe all citizens of Kyiv knew uh, by the 24th of February where the closest shelter is located, what they need to take in their pockets, and the most of us had their bags like the, uh, yeah, you know, the, the extreme bags you need to take from home if something starts. Yeah, so that's it. But uh, obviously, uh, most of us just woke up at 24th from the news or from some noisy sounds on the streets and try to provide their safety as, as soon as they as it is possible that's not like anybody is ready but we did something to be prepared yeah had it, had it ever come this close before did it ever feel like this could have happened in the past not for Kiev um, I have kind of personal experience with Crimea because uh, the parents of my mother are from Simferopol, from Crimea, and when they simply saw these guys on the street that was supposed to be Russian, but without any flag, obviously, because Russians they using the non-flag system, yeah. Uh, so they just uh, take their bags and left Crimea almost immediately, like in a month. Everything was sold or taken away there. And we already knew that this is possible and we should be some kind of prepared, somehow prepared. Mm -hmm. 
wealth or to at least do something. Yeah. Kind of, I mean, just, just looking at holistically, like I worked with you and the new archaeological school in um, Zaporizhia. We also worked in Zavalia with the Odessa group. You got to take me to Kiev and show me your home in the home city. Like, how are all your colleagues doing? Because they're all now in major population centers that are that are pinnacle points of this ongoing conflict. Yeah, uh, the worst is Kharkiv, obviously, and even some terms so those of us uh, who were in Kharkov um, in at, at least they are really scared uh, it makes for some of them the uh, flats are uh, crashed yeah their uh, lives are crashed they don't have a place to work uh, with my relatives and with New York logical school with more or less anybody I know in person everything is okay and they are safe, they manage to leave the dangerous places. Those that are in Zaporizhia, they uh, just work to uh, make Zaporizhia prepared uh, when Russian will came there. Uh, I don't see any scenario in which the entry the Zaporizhia will be successful for Russians because it's incredibly hard. Uh, but uh, in general, uh, most of this, uh, most of archaeologists and my relatives are safe, but a lot of people already lost their homes and uh, relatives and their family and their sisters. Yeah. Hey, we we have another question um, from from the audience. Um, this is from Matthew Lowry. Uh, so he's asking, what are your concerns for like the cultural material and cultural sites during the invasion? Are they afforded any sort of protections or is it kind of an afterthought? Um, I think that the protection is almost impossible. There's like two kind of threats to cultural sites. The first one is the sh- um, shelling and missile attacks and uh, bombs and everything. And we can, there, there's nothing we can do with this. So I already know like five or six sites that are destroyed from different periods of Ukrainian history and prehistory. And this number will be higher and higher. And our minister of culture simply at least started to record this and open the portal when everybody can share the fixation of this stress. The other kind is the um, our attempt to protect the sites from being robbed or from being destroyed by people by hands. And this is happening with those sites that uh, has been protected before. Like uh, a friend of mine who working in Rockard site near Militopol, so now it's the occupied territory. Uh, there's a national reserve in there, and the workers of that reserve simply uh, organized to provide the basic protection to the site. That's the best they can do. They are like in a really depth of occupied territory and they will not be deoccupied soon so they just try to protect the site from being destructed sure we um heard i took a class i think someone listening here too alex uh took a class uh, on curation and like one of the things about you know like you got to worry about is flooding or fires or earthquakes and then like one of them was war 
and like i kind of just shrugged that off as in like you know it's not gonna happen here uh but like watching the news just watching stuff get but i'm sure chernobyl is kind of a historic site in a way now too and it's just like there's no way to protect this it's just it's hard to watch especially with people dying but archaeological sites it's like wow yeah that's gone I don't want to be like cynical, but that's the not biggest problem with Chernobyl in terms sure. of war. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I was just trying to like from, I don't know any big ones. I guess Carlton from does, Soviet but. history. Uh, there are the two sites I'm really, or maybe three. I really like uh, said to talk about. That's the destruction of the biggest aircraft in the world, airplane in the world, called Maria, which is. Uh, um, yeah, which is the dream in Ukraine. So it was destroyed. And the second is this square on the preview, uh, the square of freedom in Kharkiv, which used to be the biggest square in Europe and the great uh, site of Soviet constructivism and Soviet architecture. This is very funny. This site has been destroyed, yeah. And the third, this is the Museum of Ukrainian artist Maria Primashenko. He, she has really iconic uh, artworks, but the point is when uh, Russian uh, attacked this museum, there were fire in there, and people simply tried to save the pictures, the images from the fire, and uh, managed to do this for almost all pictures, almost all artworks. Mm-hmm. That's, but that, that's the most iconic. Uh, sure. Wow. So um, Chris brought up a really good point. Our producer, like, we should probably situate where Ukraine is. So I'll go ahead and share my screen just so we're all aware of what we're talking about. Except I can't share my screen, apparently, because we have too many video sources. So never mind. Uh, here, uh, I, can, I can dip out. Oh, wait, no, 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 you're fine. Stay, okay. stay, stay. Um, so just for those who are geographically challenged, Ukraine is... Um, on the northern side of the Black Sea, it's just opposite Turkey of the Black Sea, southwest of Russia, south of Belarus, east of Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania. So like Eastern Europe, the breadbasket of Europe. I think it's the largest country in Europe by landmass. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like no joke. It supplies a lot of the world's grain. And so kind of from a military standpoint, the loss of Ukraine from Russia is actually a pretty, pretty big blow in terms of and also the amount of energy you guys all produce like you guys are ukraine produces a lot of national natural resources um food and and yeah just before interview i just uh, read the uh, article about the uh, neon production this neon production is what is needed to uh, produce the semi uh, connectors yeah to produce got uh, video cards and other uh, technological devices. So uh, the almost all neon, like more than more than the half and almost two thirds of world neon supply was provided by Ukraine. And now it's uh, completely stopped. So if you plan to change your video card nearest days, you need to hurry up because we apparently oh, have another price growing for that. Yikes. And we're already having problems with the access to that right now. Yeah, it's yeah. and such it a large problem. Much further. If the war will not uh, finish soon, it will become much further. Yeah. 
Um, we have um, I was yeah. gonna ask another question um, from Ash. Um, so, from she's asking from a museum archaeology. Oh my gosh, why is it think? Why are things moving? Of course they are. From a museum archaeology standpoint, is there a concern that the artifacts and archives could be stolen and taken um, by Russia, like what happened in Syria? Um, it's much more complicated to sell the artifacts from Ukraine than artifacts from Syria because of the uh, state of prehistory. Yeah, the, uh, they are simply not so expensive. But uh, yeah, sure. And we just need to consider the possibility that Russians in any kind will take everything and we'll try to steal everything. So, yeah, it's possible. And those uh, museums who managed to provide at least some kind of evacuation of the material, uh, they try to consider this. They war crimes and trying to steal as much as possible. Some of our museums managed to do this and some didn't. Yeah. I know, like, you took me to like all the museums you could and that was one of my favorite experiences and I'm pretty sure I annoyed the living hell out of you because I took a picture of every single exhibit because I was like I don't know if I'm ever coming back here but something that always stood out to me is that in the National Museum in, in Kiev was was the the exhibits on the USSR and the names of all the people that died under Stalin's purges and really kind of this narrative yeah. of like being part of the USSR was was horrible um, and this kind of goes back to like um, this is going towards Caleb Welch's question. Thank you, Caleb. Um, he asked, you know, what do you think of Putin trying to justify the invasion by saying Nazis have taken over the government? He finds this especially strange considering the current president has relatives who survived the Holocaust and is currently a practicing um, man of the Jewish faith. You can say it. Well, uh, first of all, I think we'll need another exhibition after this war. Maybe not about the USSR, but how the independent Ukraine already. Uh, the second is about uh, this justification. Uh, I saw even the slides from uh, Russian schools, from Russian uh, historical lessons at schools, and there's no kind of logical sequence in any kind of this justification. Uh, first of all, because uh, any that. That's not the sin of Nazism in in Ukraine, uh, and no signs of this Nazism. And uh, the, some messages that Putin tried to apply for his self-justification is simply a lie. Like, yeah. Russian language is forbidden in Ukraine. That's not true. Yeah. And, like, we're uh, having a breakfast with Russian kids. That's also not true. And there's a lot of these messages, that just a general narrative for Russian media, that's it. And um, that's no such thing as any kind of uh, Nazist ideology. Uh, obviously, uh, I, as far as I can try to apply a logic to this, yeah, um, uh, the idea that Ukrainians uh, is uh, and Ukraine, Ukraine is a nation and you can be Ukrainian and you don't want to be Russian if you want to be Ukrainian might be considered as a necessary idea by people who simply want to renovate USSR. But basically we all know that this is not necessary. 
Mm-hmm. Right. I think and that I, I'll, uh, sorry guys, I think I, that I'll lose the connection in like five minutes. So let's do the trick and I'll try to re-enter uh, the interview from uh, the phone. Yeah. And we'll see. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Let's see here. Um, I think I think in the meantime, Carlton, you had uh, Alex Crave had asked a question um, about um, things that we can do. So he says, uh, my fiance works at an immigration law firm and was wondering what avenues should they pursue to help refugees and what kind of nonprofits are the best to contact. And um, Carlton is dropping some links um, down in the chat there of things that uh, Simone had sent to us and other uh, Ukrainian folks to yes. help ultimately with with as much as possible um as much as we can help yeah yeah so that will be for those listening at um home after the live show that will be in the show notes itself wherever you're listening to this episode um for everyone that's following the live stream right now um that link is now in the chat box it's an npr list of like 27 ways to support ukraine to different links um and and so you can send your money um, to somewhere that you think is, is most um, important. So please, yeah, like make sure yeah. you're able to do that. Um, you know, this it, it's as, as we're waiting for Simon to come back. It's anthropologically, this has been a really interesting, interesting is the yeah. wrong word, but like I, what's I know what happening you mean, right now yeah. is, has been, there's good and bad sides. Like kind of saying yeah. how welcoming Europe has been to Ukrainian ref- refugees, but then you look at how they were to Syrians. Um, of course, no one across the globe should have to go through this sort of um, event. Um, yeah, it, it just makes me think of like hunter gatherer stuff too, because like you have not that the men are staying and fighting and the women and children are leaving, but like just seeing the women and children walk so far across like it's just like humans are built to just be migratory and it's just like jarring to see how far some of these people are like going and just like leaving how quickly and how little things they take with them it's sad um but like at the baseline you just need food and water and like safety (laughs) it's hard to it's hard to see so uh julia just dropped a link to a google uh google sheet that has a bunch of links um, Julia, do we have permission to put that on our um, episode description when this comes out? Because that would be super uh, helpful. I guess in the meantime, I had another, uh, or I guess a response to a question. Um, so I think it was it Caleb. We were talking about like the denazification I, thing. Oh, yeah. one second, guys. Um, so uh, we're getting some things. Uh, if you guys can hear us, if we're frozen, um, we please drop something in the chat. Let us know that you can hear us because we are having. Um, uh, other folks say that they can't see us and they're frozen. So we just want to make sure that's an, if that's an internet connection issue. Um, Chris Chris Webster, who's supposed to be running this, um, just, just saying he's having issues. So if you guys can hear us, drop a hello. How are you down there? Okay, okay, cool. Sweet. Awesome. Perfect. I'm still working on trying to get Simone on there. So sorry, David. Okay, no continue. worries. Are you good? Um, yeah, so like I've been watching this really closely because it's just it like world history fascinates me um, about like a lot of Americans like kind of forget that, or at least to my knowledge that the Soviets and the Americans fought with the British against the Nazis. Um, so like, it's a deep history for them as well that like, you know, we're all anti-Nazi here and like, we've got war movies about it. Uh, so, so are they. So it strikes a chord with the Russian public to say like, 
we're going to go fight Nazis because then they're all like, hell yeah. And like the propaganda is just like, you know, essentially saving Private Ryan to them, but they're going into Ukraine instead of Germany. And like, it seems the older generation is just like hyped on that from what I've gathered. And like the younger generation who's on Instagram is like, no, (laughs) Uh, I don't know. Ola, you can probably speak more to that. um, But uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'd be curious to hear what Simon says about that. And then also like a a point to note, it's like when um, the Nazi uh, Panzer SS divisions were starting to go through Ukraine, like Ukrainians had originally opened Nazi Germany with open arms because they're like, yes, the end of the Soviet Union, like we're saved. And then it was worse. It was just so much worse. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there was that point in Ukraine's history during that time where they thought they were about to be free of the USSR and Stalin. And then it was just the USSR became the lesser of two evils. And we have Simon back. And real quick, we're going to go ahead and end for those that are listening from um, the edited version. Uh, This is the end of of segment two. We'll be right back with Simon um, on our conversation. And welcome back to segment three of episode 100. We're here with Simon. Um, Simon, uh, yeah, so yeah, we were just kind of chatting a bit um, while, while we were waiting for you to get back on. Um, we had another question from the audience. Um, so uh, Morgan from Wyoming was asking, in the beginning, you mentioned that it was about a two-week process for you to get out of Ukraine. Has this been the average timeline for people to get out of the country um, and have the attitudes from the countries taking refugees been positive? Um, and that's not like I spent two weeks to uh, leave the, the, the Ukraine. I spent three days to arrange everything in Kiev and nearby Kiev. Then I spent two days to uh, reach Lviv. It was kind of complicated because some roads were dangerous and some roads were simply crowded, but we did it. Then I spent like a little bit more than a week to arrange everything in Lviv. And just then I tried to leave the country and cross the border with Poland. With me, it was kind of quick. I spent only 12 hours on the board borderline. Uh, for some of my students who tried to do the same, it was 50 hours in the queue. So, and that's it. But, uh, as soon as you cross the border, uh, everything is great because Europeans do it try to be helpful. And in Poland, it's like extraordinary. The Ukrainians' flags are everywhere, European flags, and everything is as free or cheap or clear as it is possible. So they arrange special trains to reach the safe points. They arrange special safe points. They arrange food. They arrange like everything. And it's great. And there's really a lot of help and support from Europe and from Europeans. Rather than from, from institutions, also, but mostly from just people who are trying to be helpful as helpful as possible. Gotcha. Now, I, I have a question for you. Like, I thought um, the president is not allowing um, Ukrainian men between 80, 18 and 60 from leaving the country. How are you able to get across the border? Yeah, that's true, because we have now a war state. We are in a state of the war, so it's impossible to uh, cross the border. But I want to basically reach to the military authorities unless I want to do it personally. Uh, there's a different categories which include three kids uh, 
the like if you're a man who uh, have a kid with some d- disruptions yeah or with some uh, illness and a lot of this and one of this category is the man whose relative died in the war with Russia since 2015. So that's why I'm not a wish to be the service and can close the door. Interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, I believe almost every country in Europe has this formula, but uh, European countries simply don't need this because they don't have formalization. No. Yeah. Um, there's another question here, which I think is pretty interesting, um, and it's in regards to memes, uh, and like our meme culture here in the States is like very strong, uh, and I know a lot of them are like super pro-Ukrainian, pro-Zelensky, like everything, like is that helpful to you guys, or is it like annoying, or? Yeah, it's obviously helpful, because okay. uh, uh, there's no reason to explain. Obviously, it's helpful. That's really nice. Sure. And uh, we see, again, this is something about support, and uh, we also try to produce as much memes as possible. And that's also kind of information war. Yeah, that they, yeah. We, we've seen the, the war like this in 21st century for the first time, and we see that for example telegram or any kind of messenger is really a kind of bottleneck so it's better to use everything we can in this it's a really good point yeah kind of like coming out of this like one of the more fascinating urban legends that's come out is the ghost of kiev yeah like especially early on like i have a poster that's supposed to get here in a couple days that i'm hanging on that on that door for the ghost of kiev like i was just and that speaks to like how you know dedicated your country is to protecting its citizens and its people like russia thought they were able to take kiev in three days it's been over two weeks like they've lost so much men and equipment and it's just been it's just been really fascinating to see how resistant that's like you know i don't want to provide an any kind of interpretation to russian troops or ideas but from what we see it's possible that they ex- just expect that they will enter the, the city and the citizens of Kiev will throw flowers to them or everything like will be great to be denazified. But that's not true. We have our identity and we need to protect that. And there are, we have a lot of city lenses like uh, a guy uh, stood in the queue to the war office to receive his weapon and go to protect peace. And uh, he uh, was afraid of uh, bomb of shelling this place, but not so afraid as to lose the, his place in the queue. So uh, all of these people were just uh, forced to say, uh, despite Shaman, uh, like something like this. And we see it uh, like everywhere. In Lviv, uh, the government tried to force every people who arrive in Lviv to um, be on the to stay in the register in the war office just to calculate the man for instance but war offices can do this because they are included as volunteers who want to serve so really like every ukrainian want to protect the country to, to the area 
Yeah, it's instead of flowers being thrown at him, it's been Molotov cocktails. Like David shared a video not too long ago of some tank trying to get in Kharkiv, and like dozens of people were just like, get the fuck out. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of them already knew how to produce these cocktails because of 2014. So, in fact, in the last eight years, we had like a passive training of what to do in the war time. And our military forces were really trained by this war in the East. So now um, the country is really well prepared to any kind of invasion. So do you think I was gonna... found out that video is 2014, not currently, oh. but still, yeah. Still. Yeah. Yeah. So, Simone, I was going to ask you, do you think with the advent of technology and the ease of spreading information out of Ukraine, do you think that is something that is helpful to the cause of Ukraine or also, and, and is it detrimental in the same sort of way? Sorry? Oh, yeah, no. I was just going to ask, like, so everyone has a cell phone, you know, everyone you know, uploads stuff to Instagram, to Twitter, to everything like that. Is this, do you think this is something that is helping your country during this yes. war? Or is, okay. We have a lot of practices, like, uh, if you notice the war column or war tank or any kind of technique, just uh, make a photo and sell the, uh, send the coordinates to military forces. Or, like, uh, send the coordinates about some diversion group. At the very beginning, the uh, Russians put the markers for, for the place they intend to shell to put the missile in, and uh, our military officers just sent to the public's messengers the examples of these marks and told like people, if you see this, just destroy it in any way, and people did this. So, so yeah, uh, it is very helpful for the civilians to do their um, well, how much time do we got left, guys? Ten minutes. Yeah, we have we have about ten minutes. Um, Simon, is there anything you'd like to like share with the world, and like let us so we can go from there? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I, I mean, these questions we ask like everything. There, uh, I just want to notice, yeah, that uh, when when we arrange this, you wrote the on the title that this is kind of Ukrainian crisis or something. But yeah, we I we all need to insist that this is war and that Ukraine is kind of standing to protect the democracy, and uh, we are basically doing well with this and you all guys try to visit me on the third grade when it will happen yeah man yeah, yeah. absolutely uh, I'd love to get we have, an, yeah. we have another question down in the comments um, do Ukrainian archaeologists have a tradition of working with Russian archaeologists and if so how is the war affecting that relationship we used to have this tradition before 2014 and after 2014 it became something like um, uh, based on the low moral ground like we already knew by that 
that time that Russians are claiming our land, so it's better not to work with them. We still used to have some communications, and a lot of this communication came through Europeans. Like, uh, if we work with these Germans, both Ukrainians and Russians, we first work in one motion, for instance, yeah? But now, uh, as for any country in Europe, and uh, as for most archaeologists, uh, Russia will not be the country or Russians will not be scientists who intend to have some good relations with any European. I used to translate into Ukrainian uh, a document of the World Archaeological Congress uh, last few days a declaration that the Russian archaeologists who support this war or uh, stay talk about this war will be considered as the um, assistant of the empire of evil or something like this. And obviously most of Russian archaeologists will support this war because just simply calling it war will uh, be the reason to prison them up to 15 years. So most of them will put it just for reason of safety. So where's your family now? Your mom and your grandma, Simon, so you were able to get them to Poland? And uh, most of my my uh, grants uh, just refused to leave Kiev uh, because they already did, made a lot of efforts to leave Crimea and they are not quite young really they, on their late 30s. So basically, they just decided to stay near like This is southeastern part, so it's the most safe part of Kiev and it's cold there. Uh, I believe that they will be all right. Um, uh, that's it. I, I hope that it will stay like this. They have the car, they have food, and they have some medicine. So basically, everything they need is available right now. And if things will go uh, good as they go now, they are safe. And then, um, so we get a lot of uh, you know news here about uh, President Zelensky and like how he's handling things, and, you know, using social media and whatnot. Uh, what do Ukrainians think about him? Um, so, uh, you know that he's an artist uh, by his first profession, yes, so he's really good in social media, and that's nice, and he has some skill of uh, nice speech, of nice speaking, so that's also okay, and we kind of used to um, think that he is not a great president in the peace time, but for now, for this uh, period, I say that uh, every action of our government is correct. Everything is great, and I'm more or less trust them to do what they And this is also about the president, and uh, you can see by any kind of uh, tests and queries that the support of our president is growing tremendously by these two weeks, because, yeah, indeed, everything is doing like great. Yeah. Well, as, as we're about to end this, Simon, what can we do? What can our listeners do? What can our colleagues do to help you and help um, the people of Ukraine during this time? Uh, 
I believe that uh, you place these links for the support of uh, military forces in Ukraine. I have sent you anyway, but uh, basically that's it. We need to do this with all, we all, I mean, and we need to continue support Ukraine and Ukrainians, uh, uh, those who left Ukraine and those who are still there. And we need, I believe that the most important that we need to continue to declare our position about Ukraine and Russia constantly in every kind of media to uh, make all governments in the world knew that we are against the war and we want Ukrainians to stop dying from the war. That's it. And in fact, there's a message. We can obviously ask NATO to close the sky to provide military treatment, but the, the specific messages maybe even it's not so important as just saying that we are against the person, I intend to provide a lot of financial and voluntary support as I can in Italy and then in Norway. All right. Um, for our audience, those that are listening live, um, in the comment section, I dro just dropped our email address. If you guys have any questions for us or Simon after the show, please feel free to email us and we'll get back to you and get you in contact with Simon or other um, Ukrainian archaeologists in the Ukrainian public that we can get you in contact with. Um, Simon, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. Like You had just got into Italy, man. I really appreciate it, you coming and speaking to our audience, um, both for the live show and, of course, this is coming out uh, in two weeks, not this Monday, next Monday for our audience. Um, dude, I miss you a lot. I can't wait to see you again. I really hope this all blows over. Yeah, I really hope you win soon and everything will go over, and then we definitely wait for you in Ukraine, and I still will try to invent some service in this country. And thank you very much, guys, for giving this possibility to talk about the Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for being here. Yeah, wish you the best. Yeah, thank you. Thank you to all our listeners, all the people who showed up today. Thank you for showing and you know being with us for this hundred show yeah we hope to do more live shows in the future um so if you guys like this please let us know if you'd like us to continue doing this format um thank you all so much for coming today and supporting simon supporting us um we will be with you guys again this has been episode 100 of the life ruins podcast stay safe everyone Slava Ukraine. Slava Ukraine. Take it easy. How do I get out of here? I'm, gonna, I'm just making sure. I'm gonna, what, what, I'm gonna I was like, oh. because we will, we will definitely. All right, I'm going to end it right now, okay? All right. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Hey. 
This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.